Um, welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. Uh, worship team, thank you again for uh, leading us in those wonderful songs and uh, very, very appropriate songs, even more appropriate, I think, after the message too. So I actually uh, was asking uh, Vincent if they could actually lead us in uh, a couple of those songs again after our message this morning. Um, well, it's a pleasure to open up God's Word with all of you this morning. Um, you guys probably noticed the lights. Uh, Pastor Roger mentioned it in the beginning. Um, I think Pastor Henry must have asked me to preach this week because uh, he knew that these lights are going to be a distraction. So, uh, uh, you know, people aren't going to be paying attention. Let's put Justin there. <laughs> um, but uh, I want to say thank you to our AV and worship uh, ministry people. Um, it's not just the lights. It's also the stage, the sound equipment, the projector, all of that. You know, they really put a lot of time, a lot of hard work a lot of effort into researching and uh, planning and doing all of that to uh, get this uh, worship hall into what it is. So uh, if you guys get a chance to see any any of our worship ministry and AV people, please uh, show your appreciation to them. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 for the last several years, um, the opportunities that I do have to open up God's word with you. We've been looking at some of the parables of Jesus from the gospel of Matthew. So I just thought, let's just continue to do that. And so today we're going to be looking at another parable in Matthew chapter 18. It is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, Let's stand as we read God's word together. I will read from the English standard version and you can go ahead and follow along in your version. Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So, the servant fell on his, on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Our heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to look into this wonderful word. It is directly from the mouth of our Lord. And it cuts through to each and every one of our hearts. Lord, we have received much. And we pray that as we explore your lavish grace in this passage, that you would convict our hearts, that we too might lavish that grace upon others. Give us open hearts, open ears to receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Just a quick word about the, con- the context. Matthew chapter 18 begins with Jesus' disciples probably arguing. Probably. We don't know for sure. But it was very possible that they were arguing about their favorite topic to argue about, which is who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They tended to do that a lot. And we see that in the beginning of chapter 18. Take a look at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus proceeds to answer their question and to teach them a lesson. And the lesson is about how valuable every member is in the kingdom of God. So here they are bickering about who's better, and Jesus wants to say, everyone is valuable in God's kingdom. So what does he do? He takes a young child, and he uses a child to be an illustration. So if you take a look at verse 10 of this chapter, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Don't despise these little children. And what he's doing is he's using the children as an illustration of all believers. You don't despise, you don't hate children, do you? I know they're messy, they're dirty, they're loud and obnoxious at times. Not me, but, you know, other children that I've seen. No, I was was pretty obnoxious. And what did parents do? They don't despise their children. No, they're patient with them. They understand, okay, these little ones, they don't understand. They don't know better. They're immature. So they're doing all of these things, but it's okay. We can be patient. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, all believers are like little children. Don't despise each other. We ought to 
accept and love and receive everyone. And so he's concerned that they love each other rather than try to compete against one another. Now, at times, as many of you might know, even amongst brothers, and I would say especially amongst brothers, we fight. I have an older brother. And you guys, brothers, you have guys here, siblings, or brothers. We fight. We fight about big things. We fight about small things. We argue. Sometimes it gets physical. So Jesus understands that. And so in verse 15, he talks about what to do if a brother sins against you. Now keep in mind, this is all within the context of brothers, meaning we're talking about believers. How do Christians treat each other within the body of Christ? And so take a look at verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, this is the famous passage, as some of you might know, on church discipline. And we often think of uh, this passage as setting guidelines for how to confront a church member who is living in unrepentant sin. And it's unfortunate that even at our church, we've seen and witnessed that before. Sometimes during our church family meeting, one of the elders, one of the pastors will have to come up and, and with great regret express that a certain member of the church is in unrepentant sin and would call the church congregation to pursue this individual so that they would turn from their sin. Now, we tend to think of this passage in verses 15 to 20 in that kind of way. Oh, this is that famous passage on church discipline. It sets for us guidelines for how the church deals with professing believers who will not repent of their sin. But if you look closely at verse 15, you realize that's not the primary intention. That's not the primary intention of this passage. The primary intention of this passage is actually not how the church deals with unrepentant sin, the primary intention of this passage, first and foremost, is when a fellow Christian sins against you personally, what should you do? Verse 15, if your brother sins against you. See, that's the spark. How do we navigate through this these interpersonal problems that we face. And they're bound to come. A church this size, I don't think I would be wrong to, to even assume that there are probably some conflicts, whether it is amongst believers in the home, family members, or here amongst church members. And this is the transition leading into our passage this morning. What do you do when a brother, a fellow brother, sins against you? And so the Apostle Peter, who is thinking about this, he comes to Jesus and he asks a question. Verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Apparently, it might not seem this way, but Peter is actually being generous. 
Because in rabbinic teaching, the rabbis used to say, okay, well, when it comes to forgiveness, we have to forgive more than once. But how many times? And so they actually set a number. The rabbis set the number three as the number of times you ought to forgive. So here, when Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times, Jesus? Seven times? He's actually being generous. It's more than what is expected of them in their culture, which was three. And Jesus answers him and says in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, the Greek there can be translated as 70 times seven or just 77 too. Either way is okay. It's most likely 77, I think, but that's not really that important. The whole point is that you cannot set a quantity. You can't set a number. And the parable that we're about to look at is going to make that very clear to us. There is never a time in which forgiveness should run out, ever. And so that's the context that reveals for us the occasion for this parable. Now let's get into the parable itself. And in this parable, we receive four insights that motivate us to forgive. Four insights that motivate us to forgive. Insight number one, an immeasurable debt. An immeasurable debt. Take a look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So in response to Peter's question, Jesus gives a parable to teach about the kingdom of God. Now, what does this parable have to do with the kingdom of God? He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Well, this parable tells us, for one, what kingdom people look like, what they are like. This parable also tells us what the king is like. What do kingdom people look like? And what does the king of this kingdom look like? Now, in this parable, the king wished to settle accounts with his servants. This king must represent God because God is the ruler of the kingdom of heaven. So the connection seems pretty obvious. He, and this king, he calls his servants to settle accounts with them. And the term for servant there is the word doulos, which means bond slave, servant. And it is a fitting reminder that our place before God is that of a slave and a servant. Let's not forget that. He is the almighty God. He is far above and beyond us in terms of greatness, majesty, splendor, power, authority, we are but lowly servants. And in verse 24, it says, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Today, we use the word talent to refer to um, things that people are good at doing, maybe their giftedness. But in Jesus's day, a talent was a measure of money. 
And it is unclear exactly how much money a talent was, but there is some evidence in various sources that a talent was equivalent to 6,000 denarii. You go, what? What's 6,000? How much is that? Well, a denarius was the wage of a day laborer for one day. It's what he made in a day. So 6,000 denarii would be the equivalent of about 20 years' worth of wages. 20 years' worth of wages. That is one talent. 20 years' worth of wages. This servant owed the king 10,000 talents. So if you do the math, 200,000 years of wages. Now, anybody here know someone or know someone who knows someone who knows someone who's ever lived and worked for 200,000 years? I didn't think so. This servant owes an incredible amount of money. And we know that this was a loan from the king because later the king is going to call it a loan. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this guy is crazy. He is crazy. What on God's good earth is he doing borrowing that much money? 200,000 years worth of wages? And at this point, you might be tempted to think, okay, this story is just too crazy, Jesus. Too crazy. I thought parables were supposed to reflect ordinary, everyday kind of life. This is quite an exaggeration. This is a bit overboard, or very overboard. 10,000 talents, 200,000 years worth of wages. But it really, if you consider it, it's not overboard. In terms of the story, yeah, it's an exaggeration. This is hyperbole. But in terms of truth, and the truth behind it, it is precisely on point. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we have a tendency to think, oh, falling short of the glory of God. Ooh, we just missed it. Just missed it. No, it is a massive chasm that can never be bridged. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who could stand? There is an endless gulf between us and God. And that is no exaggeration. Our iniquities are immeasurable before God. To us, we sometimes think, oh, I'm not so bad. We're not too bad. And we have a tendency to just compare ourselves with other people. But how does God compare? There's only one comparison for God. He compares all of us to himself. He is the only comparison. He compares us to himself and to a perfect, pure, holy God. Even the smallest speck of sin is an ocean of transgression. In other words, 
My friends, we are this servant who owes 10,000 talents that we cannot repay. We owe an immeasurable debt that can never be paid, not in this lifetime, not in a hundred lifetimes, not in a thousand lifetimes. And as ridiculous as this amount of debt may seem, so is the outrageousness of our sin and debt in the presence of God. And in verse 25, we read this, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, this is a very, very severe punishment. Not only does he get sold as a slave, but his family is also sold along with all of his possessions. And as if that were not yet enough, payment for the full debt is still to be expected. He still has to pay the full debt. It says payment is to be made. So here is an immeasurable debt and the severity of this punishment matches the debt. An immeasurable amount of debt means an immeasurable amount of punishment. And in the same way, there is a most severe punishment for our sins. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. And that is not just talking about physical death. That's talking about a spiritual, eternal death in which we will spend eternity in hell unless there is some way to be saved. And this takes us to our second insight The first one was an immeasurable debt. Number two, an unfathomable mercy. An unfathomable mercy. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. He's desperate. He is desperate. He is in utter, absolute desperation. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way have ever experienced that kind of desperation. I was recently watching a short documentary about the deep recession that hit not only our country, but around the world only about eight to 10 years ago. A lot of people during that time lost their jobs. Many people lost their homes. A lot of people could not find a job for a very long time. And it probably affected many of you here as well. The documentary interviewed a young family, young husband and wife with two boys. The boys were not yet uh, old enough to go to school. And they basically were sharing their story. They said they both had good jobs, decent jobs, and wonderful family just purchased a moderate-sized home for their family. And all of a sudden, everything collapsed. The housing market crashed. They lost their jobs, both of them. And before they knew it, they lost their home too. So what did they do with the last little bit of money that they had? 
they went and purchased a beat-up old RV. And that was all they could afford, and they lived in this RV on the street for a long time. They couldn't even afford a lot of gas. So while the husband would try to go and look for work, he would just ride his bicycle. He would ride his bicycle to job interviews. And in this, in this documentary, he said, it's pretty tough to ride my bicycle to a job interview because I don't have very nice clothes. And by the time I get there, I'm dripping in sweat. I'm not very presentable. And so people don't really want to hire me. And I remember the wife, she just said, we're so glad that this is happening while our kids are still very young because we hope they won't remember this. And they so desperately wanted to find work and provide for their family. They were living on food stamps, going to the public park with their little grill and just grilling hot dogs for food. Now, I don't know if you've ever faced a dire situation in which you felt that kind of hopelessness and desperation. And here, this servant is desperate. And the truth is, you would be too if you owed a 200,000-year salary. So this servant, what happens to him? If you look back at the text, he crumbles to the ground. In the English Standard Version, it says he fell on his knees the New American Standard says he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. The Greek word is proskuneo, which means to fall flat on your face in worship. He fell as flat as he could onto the ground and worshiped the king. And the verb here is in the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense is going to become very important throughout this passage because it emphasizes that he kept doing it continuously. He kept bowing down and begging and pleading and worshiping this king. Please have patience with me. Please have patience with me. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. It was representative of his utter desperation. And the truth is, he couldn't pay him back. There's no way he could pay that much money. He was just trying to find anything that he could say in hopes that maybe this king would give him a little bit of breathing room. And then we read in verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. In the kindness of this master's heart, he forgives the servant, but Please don't miss the remarkable point here. This forgiveness is nothing short of canceling his debt entirely. The word used here for debt is the word loan. He forgives him the loan, meaning the, the loan is gone. Every penny he owed, it's gone. He will now no longer have to worry about paying a single cent. He what this master wiped out his debt entirely. And the master is 
quite extreme. He doesn't just say to him, uh, you know what, how about this? I'll work out an agreement with you. We'll lessen the punishment. How about that? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know what, let's lessen the amount so that you don't have to pay so much. But you still have to pay some. He doesn't do that. He forgives the entire debt. This servant doesn't need to pay back a single penny. And listen, this is the unfathomable mercy of our God on full display. What did our God do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to die on the cross so that we debtors, we sinners, will never have to pay a cent for our transgressions. Not one penny. And I love this detail in the verse. It says, the master did this out of pity for him. I don't think that does it justice. The NASB says he felt compassion. That doesn't do it justice either. It is in the passive voice. And I think a better translation would be that he was, this master was moved to compassion, moved with compassion. The master is overtaken by his compassion for this desperate slave. And this is why God sent Jesus Christ to die in our place. He was moved with compassion for us, even though we were endlessly guilty, every one of us. And that's exactly what the prophet Jonah said. You remember Jonah? He was that terrible prophet. God sent him on a mission to go preach a message of impending judgment to the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh deserved it. They were wicked. They were pagans. They deserved to die. God sends Jonah, and what does he do? He runs away. He goes the opposite direction. Why? Why didn't he go? Eventually he does. God forces him. And he goes and he proclaims a message of impending judgment on the people of Nineveh, and they all repent. They all turn from their wickedness. And here's what Jonah says in Jonah 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew God is a God of great, great compassion. And that if he proclaimed the message of impending doom, the people would repent and then God would spare them and he hated them. This is our God. He doesn't delight in the demise of the wicked. He wants everyone to repent. He is a God overtaken by compassion. It's his compassion. It is his nature. It is his character. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ. An immeasurable debt. 
and now an unfathomable mercy. Thirdly, we see a wicked hypocrisy. A wicked hypocrisy. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, I, title number three, a wicked hypocrisy because this is precisely how the master describes the servant. Verse 32, the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. He is wicked. He is utterly wicked to the core. The text suggests that right after he was shown mercy by the king, he went and found another fellow servant right afterwards. Found another fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. And a hundred denarii, remember a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. So this other servant owed him about a hundred days wage. That's less than four months of pay. This is a significantly lesser amount compared to what he owed the master. And yet look at what he does. Look at what he does. He seizes the fellow servant and chokes him. And again, the verb chokes is in the imperfect tense, meaning he kept choking him. He kept choking him. Pay what you owe. Pay what you owe. And this wicked servant has become violent. That's how wicked he is. And not only is he wicked, he is a hypocrite. The other servant pleads with him, and he keeps pleading with him, pleading with him, have patience with me, I'll pay you back what I owed. Does that sound familiar at all? Yes, right? The wicked servant said the same thing to the king earlier. Just earlier, he says the exact same words. They're almost identical, and the only difference is that this other servant owed far less than he did to the king. This servant can actually pay him back. The wicked servant could never pay the king back. And yet, how does he respond? He refuses, he is violent with this other servant, and he throws him in prison. Now, that is hypocrisy. A hypocrite is a person who says one thing, but he himself doesn't do what he says. This wicked servant had just said the very same words to the king, and yet now he refuses to do precisely what he himself had said. And the word refuse, again, is also very telling. It is also in the imperfect tense, meaning he kept refusing, kept refusing. Here is this other servant saying, 
please, please, have patience with me. Have patience with me. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. And he keeps choking him and choking him, and he keeps saying to him, no, no, you have to pay me now. Refusing and refusing and refusing. And again, if you're starting to feel like, this is kind of unbelievable. This is, again, crazy. How in the world can this servant be so wicked? How can he behave so hypocritically? How can he be so insensitive and completely behave in the exact opposite way as he should? How is that possible? Now, don't forget this. We are this person. You are this wicked servant. Remember, how do we know that? Because Jesus is talking to Peter and his disciples. These are not random people that Jesus doesn't know. These are his closest followers. And they are bickering about who's better, who's going to be the greatest. How many times should I forgive my brother? Oh, seven times? Being generous, Peter, right? And Jesus says to them, listen, if you don't forgive... You are this wicked servant. This is for us. This is for the church, for believers. How can he be so hypocritical? Remember, Peter wanted to forgive seven times. In other words, by the eighth time, no more. And just think for ourselves how easy it is to fall into the trap of the eighth offense. That's it, no more. You've done it to me too many times. I am too offended by you. She did it again. He did it again. Maybe you felt wronged or disrespected. Maybe it happened years ago and you haven't spoken to this person or a group of people for years. Doesn't it happen to us? This is not something that is foreign to us. This experience of the wicked servant isn't something that, oh, we'll never experience. We're Christians. No, it happens to us. Somebody rubs you the wrong way, you see them at church, just avoid them. Oh, I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. Maybe it's not at church. Maybe it's at home. A brother, a sister, a spouse, maybe another relative, a family member. Maybe in the church, it's a church leader. They did something wrong in the past, and now you can't think of anything else every time you see that person. See that person reminds you of how they have hurt you. Your view of that person is completely colored now. You hold grudges. That person did this. That person did that. Nothing but cold shoulders and maybe a frown for a greeting. 
how easy it is for us to fall into the trap of the eighth offense. No more forgiveness. That's it. We might be in the church together, but we don't have to like each other. We might live together, but we don't have to like each other, and we don't have to talk to each other. And at some point, we stop forgiving. But here's a very important connection. You know, the thing that so-and-so did to hurt you, the thing that so-and-so did to wrong you, that's the 100 denarii debt, the small one. And according to Jesus, we owed to God the 10,000 talents debt. That's the big one. One writer says this, quote, he who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. If you cannot forgive, you are literally destroying the bridge that you yourself will have to cross. And the words of rebuke from the master drive home this point. Take a look at verse 32. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt and it was a very, very great debt because you pleaded with me. Verse 33, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The logic here cannot be simpler because God had such immeasurable mercy on us, so we ought to have mercy shown to others. Ephesians 4.32, the Apostle Paul writes, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Crystal clear. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is also talking about the body of Christ, forgiving each other within the body of Christ. See, Peter's question was about brothers. How many times do I need to forgive my brother who sins against me? This is talking about believers. Believers who wrong and sin against each other. And Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That takes us to our fourth and final insight. We saw an immeasurable debt and unfathomable mercy, a wicked hypocrisy, and now lastly, an unending punishment. An unending punishment. Verse 34, and in anger, his master 
delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Remember earlier, the master was overcome by compassion for the servant? Well, that's gone. The compassion is now gone. Now the master is overwhelmed in anger, so much so that he delivers the wicked servant to the jailers. And this word for jailers does not mean jailers. The word literally means torturers. He delivers him, this wicked servant, to the torturers. And this torture is an eternal torture because the text says, until he should pay all his debt. And we know already he can never pay all his debt. So it is going to be an endless and everlasting kind of torture and torment as his punishment. What is this referring to? This is a clear reference to hell. And the warning is very clear. In verse 35, Jesus says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. In this last verse, Jesus ends the parable. The parable is now over. Verse 35, he is looking at his disciples into their eyes and saying to them, If you don't forgive, God will also punish you in the same way. James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. The point is not that your behavior earns salvation. Please don't make that mistake. This is not saying that as long as you behave well, then God will show you favor. No. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace. The point is this. Your behavior, whether you show compassion and kindness and mercy or not, your behavior will show if you are genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ. It will reveal your heart. One who has received God's immeasurable kindness and mercy will also show the same kind of mercy and kindness and forgiveness. But the one who has not received God's kindness, doesn't matter if you say, I believed on Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior 15 years ago, 20 years ago, doesn't matter. If you don't show the same kind of mercy, it demonstrates that your heart is hardened. And that you were never truly a follower of Christ to begin with. A genuine believer who has received the greatest mercy for the greatest debt will also grant mercy to others. A false believer who has not received God's mercy will show their falsehood by not forgiving his brothers. I find it to be very common in my experience and maybe in your experience too, when someone has offended you, when someone has wronged you, they've hurt you, they've betrayed you, that it can really eat away at you. Isn't that right? 
It gnaws at you, at your mind. At times, it can lead to sleepless nights. There are perhaps a lot of tears when people wrong and hurt us. Maybe there are feelings of resentment and perhaps even, I hope not, but thoughts of revenge. You did this to me, you will pay. I want you to suffer the same way. And even now, as you sit here in this room, perhaps you are thinking of such a person in your life who has wronged you, who has, in a sense, hurt you deeply. And maybe even now you are already feeling tense because you don't want to think about it. You've been trying to avoid it. You want to shut it out because it's painful to remember. And you feel that tension. You're not comfortable And for some of you, maybe you've been carrying this burden for a long time. Maybe it's been years. Grudges can consume you. At times when you come to church, you might put on your happiest face, your happiest facade. But deep down inside, you bury, you have buried in there resentment towards certain people. It can consume your thoughts. And in light of those very real struggles, I don't, and by the way, I don't mean to minimize the suffering. I don't mean to minimize your experience of hurt and betrayal. But I think this parable leaves us with only one overarching thought. And the thought is not, how could this happen to me? How could they do this to me? That's not the thought. I think this passage leaves us with the thought, God forgave me. And I was far worse. What they did to me small debt. What I did to God in my sin, an ocean of travesty. And I hope and pray that as we leave here this morning or this afternoon, that we will walk away being overwhelmed by the love and kindness of our God. And I hope it spurs us on to forgive. Our Heavenly Father, as we are reminded of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, we also remember it is for undeserving sinners. Lord, oh, how easy it is for us to forget that. Oh, how easy it is for us to think that we are not that bad. And at times, we tend to elevate others' transgressions. And yet here, as we stand before you, your word has laid bare to us the immensity of our sin. 
thank you for your loving kindness and your mercy. Make us do the same to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.